Hello and welcome. You're listening to the all-new Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman. We'll be here every week with a panel of guests from the world of business and beyond to take a look at the numbers behind the news. Coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, broadcast right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and straight into your own device wherever you are in the world via podcast. For our first edition, we look at the economic impact of coronavirus, or COVID-19, which has grown from a slow drip of reported cases in China's Hubei province in early January to now one of the biggest global health scares in recent history. As it stands, there are 29 confirmed cases in Australia with one fatality. The Australian share market by 11am today was down by 2.8%, wiping $56 billion in value from Australia's listed companies. These losses come on top of $240 billion that was lost on the local market last week. For many companies in Australia relying upon Asia for their supply chains, the quarantine measures in China that have brought the country's manufacturing to a grinding halt and travel warnings to other trading partners like Japan and Korea are bubbling away under the surface, threatening to pop. Complete that picture with market shedding value like a winter coat and consumers stockpiling for the end of days, and it isn't hard to envision us standing on the precipice of a global recession. When the economy sneezes, do we all get ill? Joining me to make a prognosis on the financial impact of COVID-19 is our inaugural panel of guests. I'm joined by Professor Michelle Baddeley, a behavioural economist and the Associate Dean of Research at the University of Technology Sydney's Business School, Carrington Clark, 730's finance reporter at the ABC, who has worked as an economist before entering the world of journalism, and Rob O'Byrne, CEO of Logistics Bureau Group, a global supply chain consultancy firm who here in Australia have worked with New South Wales Health, the City of Sydney and Energy Australia, amongst others. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. We'll start with you, Professor Badley. Being in the midst of a global pandemic seems to be a particularly interesting place for a behavioural economist. Does it take much for the average consumer to be spooked? And what do people do with their money during a health crisis? Part of the, the problems in this sort of situation is that there, there are all sorts of good reasons for for selling assets at this point in time, because quite clearly there are a whole load of pressures on particularly the Australian economy, given its dependence on China, etc., etc., and its bad situation following the bushfires and, and other things happening. But given its dependence on China, it's there's good reasons for the markets to take a fall. And I guess what's interesting to a behavioural economist is the overreaction. And so... In situations of uncertainty, markets and people get particularly jittery because they don't know what's going to happen next. And in this situation, a, a big theme in behavioural economics is called something called loss aversion. So people are very concerned with losses, particularly over, over very short time horizons. So that loss aversion intersects with myopia and short-termism and people panic. And behavioural economics now is starting to take your, your basic standard model of economics and finance, which is that financial markets are efficient and they adjust to, to news, new information and do it quickly and rapidly. But against that is these emotional influences that aren't sort of captured in that sort of standard stark model. So the emotional influences are the fear and greed. And there's an enormous literature in, in behavioural finance around this fear and greed and the way that it spooks markets, particularly when people are worried about losing and people panic. And there are all sorts of interesting themes that come not just from behavioural finance, but from psychology more generally. So some of the, the work that I've done in a book published last year, Copycats and Contrarians, is all about there are these rational reasons to follow the market, to because you learn from the market, you engage in, in a process of second guessing what other people are doing. You see people selling something, you think, well, maybe I should be selling too. But up against that, you've got the sort of mob psychology kicks in as well, and everyone starts panicking and thinking the next 
next person is it's sort of an impulsive response and in terms of behavioral economics that sort of maps quite well onto a book that that some of your listeners might be familiar with Daniel Kahneman thinking fast and slow all about how you have this interaction between system one thinking which is very quick emotional instinctive and that's what ha- what's happening at the moment and the system two that is more reasoned deliberative more you know quintessentially rational I guess and the two come together but in the very short term the system one the instinct the impulse the fear the greed is what's dominating mm. um, now a lot of comparisons are being drawn in the media and elsewhere mm. between uh, coronavirus and SARS. Yes. That, that yeah, seems to sure. be the best comparison, yeah, the yeah. yardstick that we mm, can compare mm. this to. Now, there are some fundamental changes in the world's economy since that period of time. Uh, one in particular is that China now accounts for roughly 17% of global GDP mm, as yeah. opposed to 4% mm, during yeah, 2003. Yes. This question's for Rob. China's part in the global economy has obviously changed since SARS, uh, but how have the world's supply chains evolved, if at all? And is there a greater reliance on Asia than before to get products on shelves? Very good question, Max. And yes, there is a much greater reliance on Asia. Uh, We tend to think of Asian supply chains or Asian sourcing to be very much China-centric, but of course it's not. Uh, China would be one of the main sourcing countries, obviously. But funnily enough, due to rising labour costs in China, particularly on the East Coast in recent years, people have started sourcing from other countries. And we saw a lot of apparel sourcing moving to India and then Bangladesh. People are saying that Africa will now be, you know, the next big sourcing country and so on. But having said that, there's obviously a huge reliance on China. And, uh, you know, people are sort of saying, well, what's going to be happening on the supermarket shelves in the coming months and so on? Um, There's not going to be a huge impact immediately on food stocks. But I think probably by the end of the month, you might start to see some of your favourite clothing or electronics goods being a little bit less available. And certainly the companies that we're working with are seeing that at the moment. So what is going to be interesting, I think, once we're through all of this, is that the whole sourcing landscape is going to get a rethink. And how much can we rely on China, not just for direct sourcing, but so many of the subcomponents are coming from China. So for example, you might be a beverage company operating in Thailand, and all of your raw materials are being sourced locally, but perhaps the spare parts for your bottling machine are actually coming from China. So I don't think we really understand yet the full reach in terms of supply chain impact. Obviously, the convenience to foreign companies of China being a command economy is quite great. They can shift their labour force almost at a whim. Mm. Now, India and other countries like that are not command economies in the same sense. So is there an element of wanting to stick with China, hoping it'll weather the storm because it's obviously far easier? Yeah, I think a lot of big companies particularly will um, because at this stage they have little option and it's very interesting when you talk to companies and you say well what about your secondary sourcing you know we're, we're told with strategic sourcing sure you might have your major supplier uh, you know based in whatever country but your secondary supplier is probably somewhere else and what we're finding is a lot of companies when they're looking to turn on that secondary supplier haven't built up the relationship with them and then they find wow they're in China as well. And so I think that that sort of rethink will go, you know, maybe we won't have all of our suppliers in one country, we'll have secondary and tertiary suppliers elsewhere, and we'll maintain relationships with them. So perhaps in the medium to long term, we'll actually see some of these other sourcing countries like Bangladesh, Africa, wherever else, actually winning out of it in the end, and, and maybe sourcing out of China will reduce a little bit. 
Uh, now, Carrington, you have a particularly interesting vantage point on this entire situation as not only a journalist, but a financial journalist. So what was your take on the potential financial impacts when the first stories of COVID-19 started to trickle in in early January? When I did my first story about the potential economic impacts of this, and we interviewed former Treasury head Ken Henry, there was some criticism of the story about over-egging the potential, rece- uh, potential for a technical recession in Australia. Uh, people said, that, you know, SARS had a very short tail. It, the event happened... We didn't know exactly how it would end, but it ended pretty quickly and the recovery was very quick. I feel quite validated by what's occurred in the last week, even though it's been horrible, because it does seem to be playing out worse than people were expecting. I mean, the world has been overdue, according to medical experts, for a pandemic for a while. And given the close proximity that humans are living in with animals and globalisation and the, the ability for the disease to spread, there's always been this fear that it's coming. We just don't know when. This is starting to take the shape. Bill Gates had a comment over the weekend, which is this is starting to play out as we would fear a pandemic might. Now, what that means is the chance of Australia entering a technical recession, which is just two quarters in a row of negative growth, is actually much much heightened. I mean, at the moment, the best estimates from China seem to be that they might have this in, under control by the end of April. Now, if we assume, as most economists seem to think at, the, at this point, that the first quarter will be negative, it's pretty easy to see how if you have another month knocked out um, of the awful levels of economic growth that we're currently seeing out of China, the numbers over the weekend were the worst they've ever been on record, um, then that's quite easy. Now, a technical recession, its we use it because we need some sort of agreed upon measure, but whether or not it actually feels like a recession, and for most people, I think that means large increases in unemployment, people not being able to, um, people not being able to buy the products that they necessarily could before, uh, and, th- and that, real, um, that real uncertainty, that's a different question. But it is, it is a tough time, I think, out there. And what we're seeing in the last week has been this panic. And markets do always, they go, they always overreach. They either get overly exuberant on the upside and then they go and they normally panic on the downside. You know, it goes from uh, fear of missing out to fear of not getting out in time. And at the moment, it does seem like fear has taken hold. Whether or not those fears are justified, we just won't know. Um, this could take months to resolve itself. It could take years to resolve itself. And, and because of Australia's particular relationship with China, I mean, arguably, they're the reason we didn't feel the full effects of the global financial crisis. They ramped up their infrastructure spending. That was great for Australian products. This could be the case where we're drawn into it because we're so heavily reliant and we just don't know. You've obviously had the unenviable task, really, of reporting on the economic effects of drought, bushfires, and now a global pandemic in a very short period of time. What is different about COVID-19's effect on the domestic economy as opposed to the effect that drought and bushfires had? Uh, well, bushfires, we all assume that they're going to be finite. You know, there is a season when bushfires occur. That season may be lengthening. There are concerns about what happens next season. But the assumption was always that this would end and therefore things would go back to normal pretty quickly. Um, drought, as important as agriculture might be to the Australian psyche, is actually a very small part of our economy at this point. And so even though the drought has been horrific and particularly bad for those people who are feeling the direct effects, for the economy, it's actually not that big an issue. The, the fact that this virus is hitting our biggest trading partner, the fact that uh, China has had to close down one of its most productive problems and the fact that we have no clear idea of when this actually ends means it's a much, much bigger deal. Now, it might be possible that China's response to this will be more stimulus, in which case they may actually draw upon Australian resources. So we could see a recovery come quickly. The concern, of course, is if this infects other parts of the, of the globe in the same way, then we could see a, a slowdown for a very long time. And Australia, as a small, open trading economy, 
feels those effects. And, I, you know, there are arguments already from people about, well, this is evidence that Australia needs to bring more production back home, that we need to have a higher risk premium about having trade with these other countries. I think that sounds slightly panicked, perhaps at this point, we just don't know. But it does show how essential China is to Australia currently. And I think there will be questions about how reliant we actually want to be. Looking at what the Australian public have seen almost in a calendar year mm. with drought, bushfires, and now COVID-19, what sort of effect do these consecutive disasters have on their confidence in the economy? I think that the series of, of negative shocks would really magnify the pessimism because we're used to, you know, one negative shock and then you bounce back and, and things get back to normal. But to have this series of tribulations um, see, it starts to seem like more than bad luck. So I think that will have quite a depressing impact in terms of consumer sentiment, if you like, which of course will feed its way through and magnify the, the, the problems, the crisis will feed on themselves. So that's in the, the short term. But more optimistically, people's memories are short. People forget pretty quickly. In six months time, you know, the stories will still be there, but people will have moved on to something else to worry about. And hopefully there's not something else waiting in the wings. But particularly the agricultural sector, that whole series of, of shocks they've been hit with in terms of the broader things that behavioural economists and policymakers more generally are worrying about in terms of it's not just about GDP, growth, etc. It's also about well-being and prosperity and all the sort of more the softer side of economic well-being, if you like. I think all of that will suffer for quite a period of time. I think it is good in a sense, maybe, that there's a fiscal surplus at the moment because there's money to spend. And so I'd hope that, that the government isn't scared to shift its position on its surplus to really spend some of that money is there that's there because when the global financial crisis for example hit hit you know the world people for example in the UK which which I know well um, was in a bad position already in terms of its fiscal deficit and and government debt so to be in this more enviable position possibly well, that's helpful the, the politics are interesting mm, though because mm. it looks like the surplus mm, is not mm, no longer mm, there mm, probably mm, not mm, at this point and then the question is are they willing to, to actually spend, spend yeah. that money yeah. given that they want to get it back as quickly mm. and given mm. how much grief they gave the other side of politics mm. for the mm. at least the yeah. secondary stimulus measures measures that came through. Unfortunately, the, the on the negative side of positioning compared to the global financial crisis, Australian interest rates are already record lows. So there may be some yeah. argument that there's fiscal space, and most economists seem to agree mm. that the best thing that can happen now would be for the government to take the lead on mm. this. Mm. But there is very little that the Reserve Bank can do. Uh, it, it looks fairly clear that they will cut tomorrow. I think that's mm. it's almost become overwhelming consensus. Um, but there's also this high risk for the Reserve Bank, which is that by cutting at already record lows, it makes yeah. it a bad situation potentially worse because people will panic. People will take that as, a, again, yeah. an interpretation of the fact that things are mm. really, really bad. Mm. And and that's where the government has a, a much, much better levers at their disposal to actually get cash into people's mm. pockets without mm. necessarily um, symbolising that panic. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see. Mm. A lot of people would agree with you. They probably mm. should spend. I'm just interested to see whether or not they do mm. or how quickly they are yeah. willing to. We've briefly touched on the idea of, of the shock value of an mm. empty shelf. 
mm-hmm. um, as something that can really spur uh, a consumer to uh, bury all their money mm-hmm. in a hole, essentially. Mm-hmm. But much of the concern is being focused on the reliability of supply chains. Uh, the Harvard Business Review released a study last Friday predicting that the worst is to come for global logistics in mid-March. Rob, do you think that this forecast is accurate from your experience, or do you think that this could be catastrophizing in a sense? No, look, I, I think we need to expect uh, a worsening situation in the supply chains. So as, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of companies are running low on stock now, but it's not essential goods. You know, we're talking TVs and clothing and iPhones or whatever it might be. It's very hard to turn around after that. So so even, you know, Karen, as you're saying, if by the end of April things start to stabilise in China, it's going to take a very long time for the supply chains to stable, to get stable. You can't suddenly turn on supply from other companies or other countries, you know, to a degree we're waiting for for China to come back up to speed. And that's going to be a very slow turnaround. Do you think that it's it's accurate to say that the worst is going to hit us in mid-March? To be honest, it's going to get worse before it gets better mm-hmm. uh, because stocks are running low. We've got problems with uh, shipping containers all around the world. We've got shipping containers piling up in Chinese ports, full containers which can't be unloaded because of staff shortages. We can't get empty containers back. So that's in, you know, impacting imports and exports. Um, that's going to take a long time to filter through. So, yeah, mid, mid to the end of March... I, I think we're, we're going to see some fairly dramatic impact on supply chains. But, you know, a supermarket's going to run out of food? No, of course not. You know, most of our food is locally produced. You might not just be able to get the brand that you want or, you know, something like this. So I wouldn't be saying it's doomsday coming. Well, it's good to hear that, at least from your perspective, we're not mm. ending in some sort of Mad Max post-apocalyptic Absolutely world. Absolutely not. No. <laughs> um, but Carrington, the federal government, one of their big pushes uh, prior to the last election was this promise of back in the black. Uh, it was a very cat- term as well and it, it seemed to sort of permeate through Australian society even people who don't know much about the budget are singing it from the rooftops as well but it's now very much in doubt you've obviously uh, touched on it a few moments ago but do you think that there's an element of the media that is pushing this idea of a potential recession I mean journalists are always accused of going after the negative but the, I mean the, the truth is if you're if all your stories are positive you're just doing PR that, the reason I did the story that I did is because I was interested in the opinion of someone who I think has pretty universal respect as an economist and who was there during SARS as the head of Treasury to try to get a comparison. And he was the one who volunteered. He thought actually the last quarter of uh, December quarter was also potentially going to be negative. It looks, you know, it looks like that won't be the case. But he suggested a technical recession was absolutely on the cards if this played out. And given what's played out since then, I think those chances have only heightened. Now, does that mean Australia is going to, you know, see queues for um, jobs double in the next six months? You know, probably not. And and the question about it being a doomsday situation, Australia is still a very wealthy country compared to the world. It may end up being that trade is redirected to us or some things that were previously being sold overseas will instead be sold at home because we can pay a pre- premium for them. But we're not going to feel the worst effects of this. But the people who will feel the worst, the worst effects of this are the developing countries if it gets into those areas. Mm-hmm. But it could still mean a gridlocking of global trade and that will have an effect on Australia. And that, that hit to consumer confidence, which was already very, very weak. I mean, despite the fact that we've had house prices increase, you know, back to basically the level that were before the big drops, people still don't feel confident in spending money. 
um, for whatever reason. I, mean, I think I think it's a combination of huge amounts of debt load. People kind of have this feeling that Australia's had, you know, 27 years of economic growth. The good times have to end at some point. And so sometimes they've become fixated on when is that disaster going to hit. Uh, but it was already a difficult situation for uh, consumers in Australia. And it was therefore a difficult situation for businesses. Um, and I think these this run of events, I, I think uh, Michelle's right, that it, it, it's actually they've worked together to this kind of overriding sense of unease. Mm-hmm. Um, and until it's clear that this epidemic is under control, I don't think people are going to feel necessarily confident about going out and making big purchases. Now, Michelle, obviously, along with this economic shift towards China becoming this global powerhouse, there have also been, since 2003, been enormous strides in access to information for your average citizen through mm-hmm. social media. Yeah. Now, a lot of social media chatter through WeChat and other uh, Chinese providers in many ways precipitated a lot of the first major economic effects of Mm. COVID-19. There were uh, videos from doctors in Wuhan. There were videos showing scores of people lying on hospital floors. What effect does social media and better access to information, better transparency, what does that do to people and their confidence in not only their government institutions, but their financial institutions, Mm. the banks where they have their money in? I think it's an interesting question about social media because it's such a double-edged sword. You know, with the Arab Spring, the social media was so crucial in getting people together. But then, to be a little bit flippant, uh, social media does not necessarily equal information. (laughs) And so I think the trouble with, with social media is people are, to use a cliche, in their echo chambers. So various political events around the world that I have my particular position on, which you can probably guess around Brexit, Trump, whatever, I am connected with a whole load of people who agree with me. And I think the trouble with social media and those echo chambers is it's about transmitting opinion in a very instinctive, impulsive, short-termist, sometimes destructive sort of way. Mm. So I think as social media grows up and becomes better regulated and better standards are put in place, maybe it could be a good vehicle for for communicating important information. And I think it would be great if it could. So I guess my answer to that, your question would be, the potential is there, but that's not the actuality at the moment. It's really interesting you say that, because if we look at the use of social media during the bushfire crisis, mm. for example, it was used very mm. positively. Yeah, and, and what it did to the Australian tourism industry, mm. I, well, you know, because I've got a, a big network in, in the UK, and all sorts of people were imagining my house was on fire, and, mm. you know, what was happening to people was terrible, mm. but, you know, it wasn't affecting central Sydney, but, but also those maps that circulated mm. on social media suggesting that the whole of Australia was on fire and all that that did to a whole load of sectors and industries that were not mm. affected. When things do turn, you're more likely to believe it. Mm. The, d- the danger for China now is that even if the news is better, even if they do get this under control, who is really going to mm. believe them given mm. how much it was downplayed at the start? Transparency is obviously something the Chinese government have never been particularly known for, but the closure of their domestic factories and the lower output from the indices, it, it does paint a far clearer picture of the situation than many of the official reports did, at least early on in the show. Carrington, is it easier to read the tea leaves, so to speak, of economic data to determine how serious a viral outbreak like SARS or COVID-19 is than rely on health data and public releases? There's, there's been scepticism about official Chinese economic growth numbers uh, since they started giving them out. Um, but normally 
the, the interpretation that I get from most economists is that they still look at the trends. They don't necessarily believe the headline numbers, but if the if the government is officially saying things are starting to slow, then you interpret that as the trends probably about probably accurate, even if the exact number isn't. But there's always been attempts to try to get a better understanding of economic activity by looking at things like energy use within areas, or if you see population movements, how much freight is being moved. They're, they're probably seen as more accurate pieces of data to interpret. And even when this crisis hit, I think there was general scepticism about how honest um, the reports were coming out. And I think it was not only looking about what was happening on the ground, but also kind of listening to what the governments here were saying or in Western democracies, where even if they weren't willing to accuse China of downplaying it, the advice seemed to be pretty extreme. The fact that there was a travel ban put in so quickly, even though Australia was at least initially criticised, at least in part for that. But I think that was a scepticism of what they were officially being told. Um, And I think that's why certain people were thinking it was a lot worse than maybe the official uh, data's data was suggesting. And so it is has been interesting to see that play out. It may not be a democracy, but Chinese leaders still care about public opinion. And so they're still trying to manage this dance of not wanting to be seen as not in control of the situation while taking serious enough action. Um, but always look at what people do as opposed to what they say if you want to figure out what the truth is. Rob, I can imagine that lack of transparency makes it quite difficult to plot a course as a supply chain consultant in China to provide companies that you consult with, with a reliable uh, and consistent supply chain in a country where it's very difficult in order to get reliable economic data. With the reliance on Asia starting to bite back against Australia, so to speak, what are some of the contingency plans that Australian companies have in place or potentially will have in place should things really hit the fan and new supply chains are going to have to be developed? Yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of uh, Australian companies have been kind of caught with their pants down here. You know, they've had their major supply coming out of China. They haven't had secondary suppliers elsewhere. Uh, and they're certainly going to be looking at that in the future. Uh, maybe having suppliers in China that are geographically, you know, fairly far apart. I mean, supply chain itself is all about managing data and having visibility of product flows. That is absolutely vital. Where you've got a situation now where you just have no visibility really from the Chinese ports back into production and so on and, and vice versa, that becomes extremely difficult. Uh, you know, companies are trying to work out when they're going to get their next shipment. Is it going to be produced? Is it is it going to be on the water at all? Um, and I think we're just going to see so much uncertainty, to be honest, over the next few months in terms of supply chain. It's going to take a while to settle down. What will happen after that? You can bet, you know, whoever's selling systems to to improve supply chain visibility is going to do very well. uh, And you want to integrate those systems all the way back into manufacturers, wherever they might be. You know, when you look at the the big multinational companies, um, they're pretty good at this. They, they have great systems, they have great visibility, but it's the sort of mid-tier and the smaller companies that are going to suffer a lot more because they, they just don't know what's happening. And it's interesting that we, we get onto that because I can imagine that there are a lot of industries that would probably be looking at the situation now. As an opportunity. Wringing their hands, yeah. yeah. So I was actually going to ask you that, Michelle. What sort of products and industry thrive during these times during a health crisis? Oh, face masks. <laughs> Have you seen the price of them? Mm. <laughs> and I, th- I, I think, playing to what you were saying before, both of you really, um, domestic industry has the potential to do quite well. Um, locally sourced 
stuff. So really, really, in terms of environmental impact, I think with 9-11, you remember all the planes were out of the sky and, and all the emissions went down radically. So there might be some some environmental benefits in that sort of way. But other things, face masks, pharmaceuticals, and some of those pharmaceutical companies are doing really well, aren't they? Um, manufacturers of hygiene products, maybe even clothing, all those sorts of consumer retail, but probably not the consumer durables, high value items. Mm. Um, I, I would imagine. It's interesting to think about what might happen to housing markets, which is mm. another interest of mine. Either way, is it going to be a sort of people hunker down and focus more on on making their home life better and worry more about that? Or the fact that the you know, their wealth has taken a hit um, and there's all this economic uncertainty around that they, they sort of don't you know move away from the housing market? I think that would be quite interesting. Is there yeah. ever a mentality of striking while the iron's hot, looking at a situation like there is now, where there's economic mm. downturn, people are clearly yeah. staying Seizing home, seizing an opportunity. Yeah, and do I, some consumers just assume that this is their time? Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the things that comes through from behavioural economics, it's not that it's not in standard economics, but not so highlighted, is that people are different. So, do people have different risk profiles, different attitudes to towards taking these? So certain sorts of people who perhaps, you know, a bit calmer, less affected by the fear, um, you know, maybe they they might do quite well. So it's difficult to tell, really. It's, it's, um, you know, very uncertain situation in terms of exactly what might happen next but certain people thrive mm. thrive in that sort of world the the two industries that mm. were probably most affected immediately were mm. tourism and education mm. uh, because yeah, they literally course, couldn't yeah. get the students mm. here what is interesting about particularly the question of students is there was a suggestion because canada didn't have a travel ban that you actually might see uh, students moving from Australian study to Canada just because they could actually get in there. I'm not sure what the status of Canada's uh, travel ban is at this point, but I would assume it's toughening up. But they, there's that question about, you know, will places, will Chinese students look at Australia as being more high risk if something happens in the future? Again, we'll put up a travel ban. Does that mean they redirect um, where they decide to be educated at? These are the, the longer term, medium to longer term questions I think that are there. But uh, for the time being, I think it's a pretty universally going to be seen as a negative for the Australian economy. Mm. And much of the debate at the moment has really sort of cut to the core of globalisation and the mechanisms mm. of globalisation where now every economy on earth is so interconnected that when you take one piece of that jigsaw out it completely collapses so Carrington do you think that we've obviously mentioned the fact that there is a potential now for more products to be sourced locally there's a potential for domestic industries to capitalize out of this or do you think that China once the situation returns to a relative state of normality can China return to the negotiating table using this as their bargaining chip saying look at what happens when we're taken out of the equation do you ever want to see this happen again um i think it it's not just one puzzle piece i think china is the puzzle piece i, I think it's probably the most important thing i, I mean does uh Despite the fact that they have, you know, lost some of the uh, low-value, high-intensity labour force jobs, they're still the most important piece in the global supply chain. Just because, you know, if you use an iPhone as an example, there's just critical parts that are made in China that are very difficult to be sourced anywhere else. They're still just such a huge part of that system, and that's how they've built themselves up. You know, they are the world.
Holt's factory for a reason, if, even if they've tried to diversify into higher value-add um, industries in, in recent times. I don't know if they'd receive a sympathetic um, hearing if they tried to claim that this is evidence that you guys need to be nice to us because otherwise the whole global economy closes down. There was already a move to protectionism, you know, uh, mm. the rise of Trump and protectionism generally in Europe. Unfortunately, I think this kind of feeds into that picture, if anything, and that we might see a further um, isolating, um, kind of isolationist kind of politicians rise to the fore on this. You know, there are people here who are suggesting it should be an opportunity for Australia to take better control of its economic uh, economic fortunes by building more stuff here. I mean, the reason globalisation has been such an attractive idea for a long time is it's meant cheaper goods, higher quality goods, and so, you know, it's lifted living standards. It'll be interesting to see what happens to, you know, more local production. So, I mean, obviously one, one solution down the track is to say, well, let's not give China 100% of our production, let, let's have it a little bit locally, and that's great for the local economy, but the sad truth is it's also darn expensive. And, and, you know, is the consumer willing to pay more? This last question is open to all of you, so feel free to dive in. It is almost philosophical, but is globalisation in the midst of an existential crisis at the moment? Are we starting to see the cracks in the system that may not have appeared earlier and now question whether it can work in the long term? I think it's been an ex- in an existential crisis for quite a while, in fact, yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean... The, the rise of isolationism and, and populism as far as local industries are concerned has been on the rise. I mean, there were, there were huge human costs through globalisation and I don't think they were particularly well managed in many mm. cases. You know, there was huge upheavals of where the labour force actually was situated when you saw, you know, lower... Um, lower income, high labour intensity jobs move from developed countries to developing countries that saw a lot of people, particularly in blue collar jobs, lose their jobs and lose their sense of self. They were frustrated by that. And so when the when the consensus was lost, as there was a consensus in most developed countries for a while between left and right about the overall benefits of globalisation, when that consensus has been dropped on both sides, it should be pointed out, on the right and the on the left, mm. that has meant that a lot of those grievances have come to the fore. And I think it was already in danger before this. Whether or not this is the tipping point, I'm not sure. But it's definitely very fertile ground for people to make arguments about why there are huge costs involved in globalisation and huge risks associated with having this spread capacity. But we also know most economists would agree it has meant you know lower costs of items, it has meant higher living standards, particularly for people in the developed world. Um, so it will be interesting to see how that argument now plays out. But there were always there was always a risk of you know having your supply chain spread through uh, you know, different sovereign nations where when something went wrong, suddenly those borders are easily put up and when things go bad, that suddenly self-interest goes comes first and which totally makes sense. You, do, you expect that's what you would do if you were leading a country, but it does mean it puts in danger everyone else who's reliant on that country. So, yeah, I think it was already in danger and I think it's probably more likely to be in danger in the future as well. Mm-hmm. Look, I, th- I think globalisation is really driven by the consumer. If we want cheaper product and we want it from all over the world, so you know it comes with a, a lot of benefit, but also a lot of risk. And whilst we have individual needs and wants around the world, not a global focus, it's not necessarily always going to work. Well. 
Well, that's about it for today's show. Thank you to our guests, behavioural economist Professor Michelle Baddeley, ABC business reporter Carrington Clark, and supply chain guru Rob O'Byrne. And thanks for listening in to the first episode of Think Business Futures 2020. This edition was recorded in the studios of 2SER Sydney, and Think Business Futures is broadcast and produced with the assistance of the UTS Business School. Make sure you subscribe to Think Business Futures on your favourite podcast app, and don't forget to tell your friends. We'll be back next week with more from the world of business and beyond. I've been your host, Max Tillman. Thanks for listening.